Good afternoon. I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. And this is Talking About California, this time with a series observing Hispanic Heritage Month. But today we will focus on the implications of the movement Black Lives Matter for the Latino community, and in particular for uh, Latino youth. Our guest is Professor Maria Rendon. Professor Rendon has a PhD from Harvard. She is professor of sociology at UC Irvine, where she examines the integration process of Latino immigrants and their children in the United States. She pays close attention to role of spatial inequality and examines how urban neighborhoods shape life trajectories particularly educational attainment and social mobility. She is the author of Stagnant Dreamers, How the Inner City Shapes the Integration of Second-Generation Latinos. So, Professor uh, Maria, is that all right? Yes, of course. Good. Uh, it's really great to have you here. So let's just get right into Black Lives Matter. Um, as we all know, It continued right through the summer and has now exploded anew with the decision not to charge the police in the Breonna Taylor case. Most generally, how do you understand this movement from a Latina perspective? Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for uh, inviting me to this important conversation. Yes, I think, you know, this is um, an issue, right, uh, issue of policing in low-income neighborhoods in the United States, particularly uh, in communities of color, right, that has been ongoing for quite some time. This is nothing new. I think uh, people in the Black community um, have always um, voiced their concerns with policing um, in these communities. Um, and we can look back at history as well to moments in time when this was also an issue of great concern in the Latino Chicano community, right? In the 60s, for example, we saw a lot of these sorts of calls from folks on the ground, grassroots organizations who, you know, are typically the ones who voice, right? And these concerns for the broader community. And so um, obviously this is not an issue that is new. I think what's new is the fact that many of us are able to witness some of these very blatant forms of violence, right? Um, because of social media, because we have these new forms of, of access, right? To, to see these incidents. And I think that's what has awakened a lot of people to these long entrenched issues in the United States. So, you know, what has happened, of course, with Breonna Taylor is very unfortunate. There's a lot of outreach, obviously, in the Black community, um, but also with many of um, the allies, many of whom are Latino, who recognize that often, that, that often justice is not served in these communities, right? And so, um, on the one hand, there is outrage. On the other hand, there's, there is, sadly, among folks who are involved in BLM and who have been addressing these issues, not a surprise at the same time that um, the latest ruling uh, turned out the way it was. But from a Latino um, perspective, I think, you know, these are very interesting times for the Latino community. We see a lot of activism among the younger population, uh, you know, the youth Today, um, there's a lot of um, folks here on the ground, certainly in Southern California, but across the country who have allied and who have partnered with folks in um, BLM to address these issues. 
And I think that we are in an interesting time as far as the Latino community, as far as uh, uh, a new era, I think, of uh, race consciousness. Not too long ago, I wrote an op-ed piece where I called attention to the fact that many of whom are on the ground with folks um, in the BLF movement are the children of immigrants. They are um, a new generation of young people who I think are beginning to understand their place in American society in a different way than may, maybe many of their parents did perhaps at, at some point. So, you know, I'd be happy to have a conversation about the way in which uh, the Latino community is um, confronting its racialization in the United States and uh, how it varies, I guess, in the broader community. Yes, please tell us about that. How do you see these changes from the previous generations to the, to the Latinos that have, uh, are living right now, this era of uh, Black Lives Matters and people of color being exposed to all this violence and segregation? So I think it's important, first of all, to, again, to recognize that this is nothing new, even for the Latino community, right? So um, we look back historically, Uh, you know, historical historians and sociologists who have looked at the integration of the Mexican Mexican community in particular in the 20th century. We know that these were communities that were also highly segregated. We know that there were issues of police and abuse in these communities, that the criminalization of young men, uh, of Latino young men, has long been there in the community. So this is, on the one hand, nothing new. Um, however, we do find ourselves in an interesting era where Um, after 1965, right, we saw a great, uh, we saw a change in our immigration laws that opened the door for a wider range of people to come to the United States. Um, and in these changes of law, we saw a rise in Latino immigrants. And so what I found in my research, um, many of these immigrants, for example, settled in the inner city in Los Angeles, for example, right, in low-income neighborhoods in the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And if you recall, these were really challenging times in many American cities. This is a time where we saw a lot of rise in violence um, in the inner cities. This was sort of the era of gang violence, for example, in Los Angeles. Many of the immigrants that arrived to these cities at this particular time were shocked by the violence, right? They had to learn to adapt to this urban environment. They were very concerned about the well-being, their safety and well-being of their families, but in particular, the future of their children, right? And I think um, in, my, in my work, I talk about the ways in which immigrants, the measures that they took to protect their children in these neighborhoods, right? Because, um, you know, these immigrants were coming with hopes and dreams to work hard and to For their families to prosper over time and were confronted with uh, communities where there was, uh, um, you know, a lot of issues of social, a lot of, a lot of problems that concentrated in these neighborhoods, right? From issues in schools to, at that time, not so much heavy policing, but in fact, the neglect of police in these neighborhoods. I think that was typically the narrative of, um, of low-income neighborhoods in the 70s and the 80s where there was just a neglect of these communities. And so immigrants, I think, at this time, who came at, an, at a time where there were these issues that concentrated there, at times welcomed police when, um, when we began to see um, a shift in these communities where 
uh, police, be, you know, we began to see more police in low-income communities um, into the 90s, into the 2000s. And in part, we have to understand why they may have been so. I, I have found this, at least in my research, where for many immigrants who came, they, they, they felt that maybe relative to their countries of origin, the United States represented perhaps a, a better system in terms of law and justice. I think many immigrants come with hopes that this is a better place um, and that, um, and that you know, and the last thing they want is for their children to get wrapped up in problems and so on. And so very often, I think what we saw in the 80s and the 90s was uh, this uh, complicated relationship in the Latino community, where on the one hand, we were seeing these issues of gangs and violence and a concern from immigrant communities about their children. Um, at the same time, we're beginning to see this era of mass incarceration unfold in the United States, right? And so we're beginning to see heavier police presence. And I think initially it was somewhat welcomed until it really began to have negative um, impacts in the community the way we know and understand them today. And so the children of immigrants that we see on the streets who are um, allies with a lot of folks in the BLM movement, I think. I think they have come of age at a time where there is heavy policing in their, in their schools, right? Because we know that since um, in the 90s, we began to see heavy policing, not only in the neighborhoods patrolling these spaces, but also in schools, right? And so these, this generation has come of age with, you know, the metal detectors, the heavy policing, the links of schools to um, local police stations, to probation officers, this, uh, what scholars call this, this, this school to prison pipeline, right? Um, and, and I think, and in the process, certainly here in California, it has not only affected black communities, uh, but in, in Southern California uh, in particular, or also in Northern California, you know, black and Latino community, they share the same spaces, the same communities, they attend the same schools, right? These communities live, um, uh, black and Latinos, uh, live very often side by side in these communities. And so they have experienced these things together, right? And I think what we're seeing is this shift in consciousness among this latest generation of youth who have come of age in this era of mass incarceration, who have witnessed the violence of police, of their peers in the Black community, as well as our own community. And I think there's outrage now. And so we see distinctions, I think, across generations, right, that are that are unfolding right now. Thank you, Maria. Very informative what you're sharing with us. Cal? Just to kind of keep up on that um, uh, track, uh, if from afar, say from, uh, sadly, from, well, my point of view, uh, I often see in the reporting uh, and in the movements that black and brown people are are lumped together in terms of most analysis. And um, I'm wondering if it's worth uh, our time to see if there are any, are there significant um, distinctions that we want to make or is it better that we, um, you know, see ourselves as all in the same boat, uh, you know, as we've done at certain times in history. Uh, that's a great question. And one of the reasons why that's a tricky question to answer, Cal, is because um, unlike um, the records that we have for 
um, African Americans in this country as far as not only policing but arrests and you know how their how uh, their inequalities through the courts and so on. We don't have that kind of level of information um, as well for Latinos. Um, there are in many um, jurisdictions ethnicity right is not recorded. Um, and so this has created a lot of problems for folks who are actually trying to understand the severity of um, of the problem in the Latino community. And so, um, you know, researchers are always trying to find ways in which to collect data to really capture. Um, we do know that based on the data that we do have, uh, yes, African-Americans, for example, um, have much higher rates um, the, of incarceration and, and, and again, policing affects them in much more, more aggressively, I guess, these communities are more aggressively policed than even Latino communities. How much is where, where the question lies, right? Um, but I think on the ground, um, from the perspective of um, the community, again, because many of these um, uh, Latinos and African Americans share spaces. I think that there is this shared experience in some ways in many of these communities. So that uh, while we know that the stats, you know, we need to kind of figure out to what extent um, the problem extends similarly to as African Americans, and I think there is an important gap there. I think the issue here is that race matters, right? And that colorism matters. And, you know, when it comes to the Latino community, we are a very diverse community. Right now, there's an important conversation taking place, I think, among uh, uh, the Latino community as far as uh, recognizing, for example, um, the Afro-Latino community um, within our, our, our larger, uh, you know, community. We are a very racially diverse uh, community. And so this uh, this is a reckoning, I think, that's taking place right now. And I think the new generation is really asking us, right, to really pay attention to the way in which um, uh, we have neglected or sort of um, uh, this, uh, the Afro-Latino uh, community um, has not been a larger part of the conversation, particularly as it relates to these questions of segregation and these questions of policing, right? Um, I think that um, I think that these conversations are taking place, um, and so I think we need to recognize um, that the that colorism matters, and that this uh, plays out on the ground um, in policing practices in local communities. And so, um, and so I think um, knowing that, however, and uh, and it's not just the Afro Latino community. I, I do want to say that because that is very much part of what's been dominating the conversation, but I think we need to recognize that um, for a community like the Mexican community, and we could possibly extend that also to the Central American community and others, in the Southwest, for example, racialization has never been only a black-white conversation, right? Um, given our history in this country, in the Southwest, there's always been this, um, uh, the indigenous uh, population and Mexicans being closely um, um, recognized and tied to an indigenous community. That has always been the root of racialization for Mexicans in particular, uh, being close to Indian, being close to and essentially non-white, right? And so when we look historically at the way in which this community has been incorporated um, more broadly um, into American society, race has always mattered and has always weighed heavily um, in the way in which this group was incorporated 
whether it was residentially and in jobs, in schools. We had Mexican segregated schools historically, right? Um, we were also in Southern California, not allowed to swim in certain, you know, pools in certain times of the day, denied access, right? And for some parts of the country, I think, I think there, there still is um, um, a lot to learn about this history here in the Southwest. Um, and, and I think that um, very often the conversation of, of race is dominated by a black-white binary. Um, and that just doesn't really resonate with the Southern California experience. So, so we do, I think, need to think about race more broadly. And I think when we do that, that allows us to then think about why it is that um, in some spaces, people do talk about a black and brown experience, right? And I think on the ground among activists, that tends to be recognized, that this racialization, right, has extended not only to the black community, but to others as well. And so, um, and so I think, you know, there are the numbers, and then of course there are the lived experience of folks on the ground. Yes, Maria, uh, when one faces this uh, violence that comes from the way you look, because it's totally based in, you know, as immediately as you look at someone, you kind of put it in some place. And it's very interesting what you're talking about, recognizing groups inside of these so-called minorities. And you just used the word that uh, has been kind of the word for me this last summer, racialization, I hope I'm pronouncing it properly, uh, because uh, when it came to me and I tried to translate it into Spanish, I was confronted with an issue about that. It's not easy to just say it in Espanol, racialización, and it didn't say anything to me. Uh, so it brought me to investigate a little bit more, and since you are a sociologist and can explain this well, I wanted to put the question to you because uh, I understand the distinction that it needs to be done and the recognition of different cultures in a group that seems by others like the, you know, la otra edad, you know, the other people sees us like a, just a group or the Latinos or the blacks or, or the immigrants. And, and nevertheless, there is a, a high um, elemental diversity inside of these groups that we belong to. But I ask myself how it helps us to actually break down these groups, how this recognition of this diversity helps in the larger conversation. Thank you. That's a very good question. I think it helps in, and I, and I think this is what the new generation is, I think, confronting is that we do get lumped together in this country, right, um, under a particular category, despite our diversity. Um, I think, you know, this question of racialization, I think it's also being addressed in, um, in Latin American countries. I, I see a lot of conversations evolving in Mexico, for example, on recognizing the third, the third um, racial group. Um, Mexico, for example, has a very dominant mestizaje kind of identity, right? The blending of people, racial groups. I mean, some would argue that that is uh, a concept that actually has worked to disadvantage the, the, log the large segments of indigenous um, populations that we know are highly disadvantaged in many Latin American countries that continue to be neglected and ignored, right? So when we have a narrative of mestizaje, right, and we don't recognize and we don't confront 
right, the realities of racial inequalities within our Latin American countries. Well, that's problematic because it means that we're not addressing these realities on the ground, right? And so I think, um, but these these narratives, uh, national narratives um, of of mestizaje, right, of a blending, are very powerful and very strong, and it shapes our identity. Certainly when we come then to a place like the United States, right, where all of a sudden our mestizaje um, uh, is called into question, right, uh, because now we're lumped into a category um, of Latinos or, you know, um, and and that involves many different national origins and different um uh, hues in our racial, you know, in our, in our phenotype and how we look. But the reality is that in this country, um, how we look and our phenotype and our hair texture and our skin tone has always been used as a way to uh, give access to resources or not, right? And we can think of this as something that is historical because we can look back at history and we know that there was laws, right? Um, that privileged whiteness, right? Um, and, uh, and that afforded a lot of opportunities to groups who, or individuals who could um, either pass as whites or um, who were lumped into that category of whites. And that category of whites has always been shifting, by the way, right? So early in the 20th century, for example, um, Italians were you there was language used for them to as to, that othered them that also characterized them as racial others right um, and at some point though they um, through a whole host of uh, policies and practices and acculturation right um, they ended up shifting into the white category right and so race and who we think about as racial groups changes over times um, and I think this, this, so this is what makes this concept really tricky, right? It's a concept that has changed over time. But, you know, the one I think um, common thread here is this a conception of whiteness, right? Whiteness being um, sort of privileged, right? And there is always and policies that benefit and serve that category of people, right? And so I think that um, we... You know, and that has been the way that this country has from its beginning been designed through its policies and laws. And so I, I think that um, for Latinos who are trying to integrate into this country, and when we begin to see that maybe over time and across generations, we are not faring as well as other groups, we have to begin to question, well, what's happening, right? Um, what is happening to this community? Why do we see more young Latino young men uh, behind bars? Why don't we see them graduating from the college or universities, right? And, and when we look at these disparities, very often it points us, points us in the direction of confronting the question of race, right? Um, and the way it seeps in through various institutions in American society. Yeah, and without counterposing this at all to what you've just said, I wanted to ask you uh, this. It seems to me, and in my experience has been in uh, Northern California, that the protests this year have been dramatically multi-ethnic. 
Right. And uh, they include, in particular, uh, many young uh, Latinos, thousands, it seems to me. And I'm wondering if there's also a, a class dimension to all of this, because uh, it, it's also my impression that there are more whites, really, than ever before uh, involved. Uh, but interestingly, more working class uh, whites, they're called millennials, but they, they aren't the graduates of the best schools and so forth. They're, they're more a generation, it seems, of youngsters who are, are facing difficulties in, in, in life. But, but um, the Latino youth that we see so often in, in these big demonstrations, are there any class distinctions to be made? Uh, well, that's, that's a great question. I think um, we don't know, right? We don't know. We, can, we know that these groups that you just described have been actively involved on the streets. It's hard to tell, right, where their uh, class background is. But I do know that, that these are very interesting times. You know, we are talking about a millennial generation who's, who's got it rough in terms of, you know, this is a generation that has come of age, that entered the labor market during the Great Recession. You know, now we're facing this pandemic. Um, we know that including working class whites have had a difficult time in the broader labor market um, because we know that for quite a while we've seen stagnant wages. We've seen rising inequality in the United States. Um, yes, that disproportionately affects uh, people of color, but has also affected working class whites. I think there is growing discontent in this country with the larger issues of inequality around class, for example, that I think are very real. And this is probably part of what we are also seeing, uh, a recognition of these broader issues um, that really do cut across different groups. Um, at the same time, when I think about the Latino population, um, you know, Latinos uh, today, uh, many of these young people, um, you know, and I can't speak again, not knowing really have not done a wide survey of who, who these young people are. But very often, these are pe young people who have been activists in some ways, many of them who have developed their activism um, through the immigration rights sort of movement, right? Because that is also a very dominant strand in our uh, Latino community. Um, and so many of these young people are college, college-going people is my guess, um, right? And then you have, of course, others in the community who, who you know, um, become part of the movement, I think, through community organizations and whatnot. These are young people who have seen violence not only in their streets, in their neighborhoods from police, but who are very often parts of why uh, communities with large undocumented population where the fear of deportation is very real, where they are very concerned with what's going on on the border with our asylum seekers. And so, and so, uh, and so we see that this is, I think they, I think BLM has tapped into a community, a Latino community who has these very real grievances um, as far as immigration and the lack of immigration reform and the abuse that we see um, on, in the border, right? And so I think that this is, this is a community that is conscious in that way. And so, um, and so it, it, they, share these, uh, they share these communities, this race consciousness, 
this extended, um, this understanding that um, that there is a, a an abuse of of uh, by the state, right? Um, not only through police and law enforcement, but through ICE and detention centers and so on. And so it is not surprising to see that these folks are coming together, right? Um, to address these broader issues in American society. Thank you so much, Maria, to help us to understand more about uh, this movement. It seems that the discontent of people uh, is not only seen here in the United States, but I'm from Chile, and the discontent in Chile is huge. And I think the reasons are almost the same. Mm-hmm. These impoverished classes, we, we were made believe that we were middle class when we were actually just poor class, mm-hmm. you know, working class and so on. Before we continue this so very interesting conversation, um, I wanted to just uh, let know to our audience that this afternoon you are listening to KZYX um, with your host um, Carl Winslow and myself Loreto Rojas with our program Talking About California. And we are interviewing today Professor Maria Rendon from University of California, Irvine, and we are talking about police and the Latino community. So thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much, Maria, for coming. So one of the things that uh, you just mentioned naturally, which is so much engraved in our discontent, are two elements. So one is the one you're describing, the majority of youth, brown people put it in jail really early from the school system that seems to be failing us badly and widely. Uh, Because we know that this is one of the countries that has the most number of people incarcerated right now. And then they are, majority of them are Latinos and Blacks. And, uh, but the other element that you were describing is these policies about immigration and the violence that people encounter if they are close to the border or trying to close the border and depriving us from our legal status just because the way we look. We had a professor, uh, sorry, we had another professor last week, uh, Alec Vitale from Brooklyn University, and he was talking about this issue of uh, driving wild brown. And how that affects uh, everybody. So could you touch some of these elements in the area regarding the the Latinos in the border? And do you see also this happening in other places, this driving wild brown and what the consequences are? Uh, Yes, thank you. I I think, yes, I think driving wild brown is a thing. I think... um, I think it's a concern, I think, in other communities, perhaps even more so than in California, right? So in California, our undocumented um, um, population is able to have a license, right, that allows them to drive. Um, And that has created a sense of protection for people here in the state. Um, And so, you know, California has seen many of these sorts of laws that protect the undocumented population. We we have heard and, and understand that some cities are referred to as sanctuary cities where we know that law enforcement is not supposed to work with eyes and there's some sort of agreement there. Um, and so I think that there are spaces and communities that the undocumented population perceives and understands to be safer than others, right? And so once we leave California, however, I think that um, there's a greater uh, sense of 
fear and concern in other communities where uh, the, the population does not have these sorts of protections, right? Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, being stopped and asked for your papers, for example, is very real. And that can, uh, uh, and we know that many of the deportations that have taken place in the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, 15 years or so, many of them have actually um, taken place um, not necessarily in the border crossing, but inland, right, where there have been, people have been stopped um, by police for a broken headlight or something like that. Um, and then they are taken into custody by ICE. And this is actually where we begin to see a lot of the, uh, the impact that, you know, that ICE is having on the wider communities and family separation or not. Right now, our conversation is very much dominated by what is happening to our asylum seekers, um, right, at the border. But certainly, um, these uh, dynamics inland um, have great consequences um, for the broader community. Uh, well, inland also, uh, uh, inland in California in terms of... Uh maybe your take on um life in the in the the central valley and with its uh trumpish employers and sheriffs and is it uh, worse there or the same yeah that's a great question uh i mean i imagine that any context that has that kind of uh political bent might feel more hostile to the undocumented population um of course you know the central valley has long had, right, um, a large number of, and I mean, many of these communities have long been there, right, um, as far as, um, and, and always has, have had a presence of undocumented population, right, and so this has been one of the ways in which um, uh, many Mexican immigrants became incorporated um, historically um, in the United States through farming, right, and through very particular occupations, Right now, that we, what's interesting with many of the farm working occupation farm workers is that there's a larger segment of an indigenous populations in the farm working communities. Many of those who are farming today are coming from from communities in Mexico, for example, the southernmost communities um, where we have large segments of an indigenous population. So, on top of this layer of of uh, you know un the undocumented experience and fear that comes with that. We see this large segment of an indigenous uh, population, some who don't speak Spanish, you know, they speak their native tongues. And this is an, an, another layer, right, in the community. Um, and so there again, you know, I made earlier comments about um, how we think about the Latino community and this racialization process very much tied to a, our indigenous roots. Well, here we have a populations who, um, who identify are very much as indigenous people. And we know very often they're um, in the most uh, exploited kinds of occupations, right? Um, and uh, I don't know, I mean, most recently, I think we, I saw on the news attention being called to the farm working community who was working really hard doing all these fires, right? And everything was burning all around them. And yet these folks are expected to put food on our table, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, and and so, you know, this is the the in California, the most the the most poverty concentrated communities are in our Central Valley, you know. And we often, because you know, so much of our 
concern maybe centers around big cities and so on, we tend to forget that uh, the most disadvantaged and marginalized uh, members of our communities are actually precisely in these communities that you talk about. And we know today, for example, that's where we're seeing higher rates of COVID and so on. We're seeing these things kind of concentrate in these communities. And, you know, it's not surprising um, when we consider the fact that these are some of our most uh, marginalized and, um, and impoverished uh, members of the society. Yes, Maria, it has been quite interesting to see how the pandemic has suddenly, you know, surfaced all this to the top. It's like it's something that is in our faces. Not only Latinos and Blacks and other groups of immigrants are considered now essential workers, mm -hmm. uh, but they are also um, entangled in this issue that they are the worst paid people, that they right. are abused and so on. And uh, I want to refer also to what you just said about um, migrant workers that have come here even to Mendocino County. And I have another program, it's called Mendo Latino, and it's in Spanish. And we were interviewing a woman that works in the, in the valley where all the grapes are grown and uh, the wine industry is a big one here in Mendocino. And, and she was saying exactly that, that she was trying to be promotora de salud, you know, a health promoter by talking to the people waiting in line to have the COVID-19 test. And quickly she realized that many of those people were speaking a language that she never heard. And she is a bilingual person. And um, so here that adds another layer of the, of the problem and how this problem can be addressed. So through your uh, own investigation research, and, and working with children of immigrants and uh, urban young people, but also understanding this dynamic that happens also in rural areas. Could you talk a little bit about how your work touches on policies in making laws, you know, in policies, and not only in the police, but also how we deal with that? And how do you see if there are any changes in that? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I think that... Um you know, my work pays close attention to uh, places of concentrated poverty, right? And I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that, you know, uh, these concentrated poverty and segregated environments don't just evolve naturally. They're a product of policies and practices, um, some historic right, that shaped and created these spaces, and some that continue to sustain these practices, right, and these, these spaces. And, and these spaces become really important because um, we know that um, there's a lot of ill consequences that come with um, living in concentrated poverty, right, whether we're talking about violence or policing or poor quality schools or health issues, right? That tends to cluster together. So one of the things that my research calls attention to is, the, um, the, is to think about questions that, uh, policies that continue to replicate and reinforce segregation. And we can see these policies at different levels. Um, at the national level, right? To what extent are federal policies promoting access um, to wider communities um, for low-income folks um, and uh, creating um, 
affordable housing, for example, promoting affordable housing. Right now, with the Trump administration not too long ago, as a function of BLM, we began to hear a narrative coming from the administration that, you know, under a Trump administration, suburban white communities were going to be remain intact, that there was not going to be any infiltration um, of uh, people of color, of low-income residents, and presumably all the problems that they bring about, right? This is nothing new. Um, and that is very concerning, and that's coming from way up above, right? And so the policies are multi-layered, of course. Um, what happens at the national level is incredibly important, sets the stage for how, how things unfold on the ground, right? But locally, of course, um, decision makers are often um, are reinforcing, right, or breaking apart these um, spaces of segregation and poverty concentration. And so housing, for example, affordable housing becomes one important space, I think, that we need to consider. Um, and, um, and of course, then, you know, there's a whole host of other uh, things that we can think about, including, you know, uh, questions about um, policing in our schools, right? There's obviously with BLM, a lot of uh, debate, more controversial, um, you know, concerns about defunding police, right? And what does that mean to defund police? Well, you know, when you talk about the activists that are really pushing for something like that, you know, police are being asked these days to address mental health issues, to be social workers. They don't have the capacity to do that, right? They don't have the training to address these issues that tend to concentrate in these communities. And so, you know, Policies that then try to think about how do we allocate resources differently in these communities if we are going to have these spaces where um, we cluster people together along racial and class lines. Well, how do we make sure that resources are redistributed um, across spaces, but even within these communities, right, so that we can actually begin to um, channel the, the, the funds in ways that are more productive and effective for the community. Um, so those are some of the things that I think about, but of course there are many others that I can, that I can speak to, um, certainly as it relates to higher education and so on. Yes, Maria. Uh, uh, this idea that actually the police is here just to protect and to keep the order in these white communities, no? And that the troublemakers are the, the brown people. Um, and oddly enough, uh, as people say, uh, well, the police shouldn't be dealing with, the, dealing with these other issues, social issues, it doesn't seem to impact the police themselves. They seem to be, uh, uh, aside from some whining about having not enough money, they seem to be rallying around uh you know themselves and their their unions and uh well you know uh i think this follows right up from what you've been uh talking about but um here uh in mendocino county um we're not separate you know from the rest of the world though some people i guess would like to think so but we have serious problems of representation Mm -hmm. Very few, uh, if any, uh, Latinos on city councils or supervisors or school boards or hospital boards or 
we have a tremendous housing uh, shortage, uh, which in particular uh, hurts the people who are least able to uh, pay. And uh, we have uh, big problems in our education system. So this is the you know this list, don't you? Um, the pay gap uh, and the COVID. We have all of that. And yet, um, we have uh, two things. We have uh, we hear from people who who seem to be well-meaning that oh no, we don't have any problems here in Mendocino County. And it, uh, I'm wondering if uh, sometimes I, is maybe just uh, ignorance. Um, Sometimes not, but uh, Loretto and I have asked many people to res respond to this because it also includes an aspect of a of, of breaking through uh, a, 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 a tendency towards silence on the part of the Latino community itself. Yeah, uh, I think that. Uh you know, one of the things that I do call attention to in my research is the spatial inequality, right? And I think many of us live in, in isolated from one another and, and very often unaware of how the other lives, um, the other half lives, right? And so, um, and this really goes in both ways, right? Um, uh, in, interesting, in interesting ways, we can think about how more privileged um, individuals may not be fully aware of the challenges that others face who do not live in communities where they have nice amenities, nice schools, um, and so on. And, um, and, and so there is like a lack of, somewhat of lack of, of awareness. We re, we, that all gets reinforced when we think about how we all cluster together also socially, right? Um, so we tend to hang out with people who are very like us um, and um, we, because not only do we live in places that are very similar, we work in places where people often are very similar to ours or our mind frame and how we think and, and how we live. Um, and so, and then now social media, right? We know that uh, the way that uh, it works is that there's an algorithm that figures out what you're into and your viewpoints, and then it kind of keeps feeding you that same sort of information. So I think social media has you know, one of the things, on the one hand, it has exposed us in many ways to many things that many of us were unaware of, but at the same time, it functions to reinforce our worldviews and our experiences, right? And so um, I think that's part of the issue, that there is this gap, even in the heyday of social media, and we have all this information at our tips. Um, but I think that, uh, that I think, uh, and so I think you raise an, an interesting point about the impact on the Latino community. Because one of the interesting things that I have found in my research is that, um, you know, very often when you don't know anything else, and this is your lived experience, right? These are the conditions that you are aware of. You aren't aware how other folks have better schools and resources and how life can actually look different. And so in my research, for example, studying inner city young men, um, who were heavily policed, very often they just figured that that's just how it is everywhere. They assumed that all communities have lots of police, that that is just the way it is. And 
um, un being unaware that actually that is not common practice everywhere, that it just so happens that your community happens to have a lot of police. So it was interesting to see, for me to, you know, see that many of um, the people that I have studied in Los Angeles, the young men, um, did not necessarily, were not necessarily the ones who were more active, who were more, uh, who talked about race consciousness, for example. Um, in fact, um, they were very often more likely to um, suggest that, you know, you know, we work hard. Uh, they were more optimistic in some ways and we work hard. We can get ahead, right? This idea that there could be a better, uh, a better future for them um, was I found among these young people, which is not necessarily the dominant narrative that we tend to get about inner city um, young people, right? Um, that tend to be characterized most as pessimistic. But I think this is, you know, you had a question earlier on about who are these people? Who are these young people who are joining BLM? And, and I made the point that many of them are activists and that many of them, my sense, are college-going young people. Once you step out of these poverty-concentrated communities, you step out to the college world, right, and to outside communities, you begin to see that there is a wider America, right, that actually has vast resources mm -hmm. um, and that just don't happen to be concentrated where you live. And that creates for young people who step out of these communities a different understanding of American society a different recognition of their place in American society, right? This is where, you know, in my study, it was not the young men who were most entrenched in the inner city who talked about race and class inequality. It was those who had stepped outside, who now as they confronted these uh, structural barriers began to then shift their narrative, their sense of identity um, and consciousness, right? And so, and so it's not surprising to me to hear you say that sometimes there is a silence within the Latino community. I think that um, one, it's a function of this isolation, right? Um, and also, you know, cannot forget that many, when it comes to the immigrant community in certain places, there's a sense of fear, right? You don't say because you don't want to call attention to the community, right? considering that there's a large undocumented population, there is a sense of fear in some of these communities, so it's better to be silent. Um, but I think the way the community is structured, isolated in many ways from um, wider society, I think that also promotes uh, what seems to be like a silence when what I tend to call attention in my work is just a different consciousness, right, as far as race and, and, and inequalities. So very interesting because under the light of you, what you just said, we can see how these kids that are sent to prison at you know, juvenile hall to begin with at such an early age, they are actually deprived of the experience of going to college. We have discussed in this program before that same topic when we see that Latino women, girls, you know, young women, will be more likely to go to college than Latino boys or young men. And uh, it seems also that this is quite reflected, even in the, the conversation that we have. Our area you know, is, is, uh, is very small, a small uh, population. And many of us Latinas feel this 
um, pressure to represent la raza, no? to represent the whole group, because there are not so many that want to speak and talk about it. So I feel that there is a long uh, a way to go to find that validation and uh, courage, perhaps, to take those places. And uh, I think also that um, these demonstrations help, actually, to find this collective voice. Don't you agree, this sense? I think so. I think so. And I think um, I see a lot of, I think I see a lot of hope in these very kind of challenging times with this new generation. Um, I see their energy. I see their fire. I think they have, um, they're pushing, I think, the broader community, the broader Latino community um, to confront some of the things, maybe the silence, you know, maybe the, uh, the fear. Um, and so I think that, uh, that, uh, that this generation is shaking up the new, the new, the Latino communities in very important ways, right? Um, they're pushing us to really confront some of these issues in American society and to make claims, our rights um, to be in this country. And so, you know, there's a lot of things to be a little bit um, sad about and, and concerned about in today's time but I do look at the new generation and I think um, I, they bring me a lot of hope um, for the future. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so that, that's kind of what I think. And, and I, and I think, uh, and yeah, many of them are women. Um, BLM in fact was started by women. Um, it was not inner city young men, right? It was women in the community, um, grassroots organizers who very often are the voice um, for the broader community who, who is unable to voice their concerns, right? And so, um, so I think that also happens in the Latino community. Um, and I certainly see it here on the college campus. Uh, many of the activists and the women, are, the, the leaders are women. Um, and uh, because they're the ones that are here on campus, right? And so, um, you know, these are their families, their brothers, uh, you know, partners and so on that are being affected specifically by that issue. Um, but of course, um, there are wider issues in the community that they tend to also uh, call attention to. Um, a question, I think we still have time for one more. Um, um, it's been a couple of years, I won't say how many, since I've been uh, in the academic uh, community. But my sense is from our uh, radio uh, interviews here in California, that there seems to be a, a, a growing and a, a dynamic, and uh, is it new or not, community of uh, Latino intellectuals who are uh, reshaping many parts of American political and, and intellectual uh, life and thinking. Am, am I seeing something there? Is that happening? Uh, or is it uh, nostalgia? I think so. I think that um, I, the numbers are still not where we want them to be as far as representation of the Latino community in, 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 the, scholar, in the scholarly world, right, in academia. Um, but I think so. And I think many of us are, um, are many people like me, right, who are children of immigrants who come from these communities and now find ourselves in academia. I think, um, you know, our life, our, our experiences, our lived experience does inform our research, the questions that we raise right, um, and the issues that we call attention to. And so I think that when we have the representation in academia, it begins to shift the conversation a bit. 
in terms of um, what we need to be calling attention to, right? And so, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be in, in a panel with two other Latino scholars at UCI, one that focuses on the undocumented, the experience of the undocumented community, another who focuses on environmental um, injustice, right, that also impacts uh, the Latino community. And, and you know, these are scholars who, uh, again, they come from these communities, they're well aware of the issues, and they've been able to get through the whole academic hurdles, all the yeah. you have to get through to be in a place to produce the scholarship and then hopefully change and, and change the conversation a bit um, or expand it perhaps to include um, the experiences of Latinos. Quite inspiring to be able to uh, talk with you, Professor. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Maria. This is very uplifting. Uh, we know we have a long way to go. The issues we confront are not new at all, and they have been uh, reshaped, represented to us in a different ways, but the ones that we are living in, we know that there is uh, a big change coming in so many areas, and I'm so grateful you are part of this group of people in, in the academia and elsewhere. So thank you so much for coming today. and Thank you for having me. So this was talking about California. I'm Loreto Rojas here with Cal Winslow. And we'll see you again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. for our last interview of the series. So keep on listening. This was KCYX and C. And talking about California says goodbye for now. Bye.